Welcome to Nerd vs. World, episode 81, A View to a Nerd. I'm Brendan. And I'm Spindles. And on today's episode, we will have reviews of Wonder Woman, uh, recaps of UK Games Expo and MCM London, and how we will save the Alien franchise. <laughs> You'll notice there's no review of Baywatch, despite me promising it last time, because... In the end, I decided it just wasn't worth it. <laughs> it was just too intimidated by it. Yeah. Just its artistic integrity and... <laughs> All that. Exactly that. That's, that's why I didn't go and see it. Um, it's been a busy couple of weeks. So yeah. It has indeed. So we start with MCM, I guess. Yeah, sure. Um, okay, well... I'm just jealous and want to hear about how amazing Sean Mayer was essentially uh, it was a very very good interview um, uh, was that the first one of the day or was that the second one of the day I think that, that was the first interview of the day um, we were expecting uh, Summer Glow as well but sadly as she's pregnant she was doing a kind of cut down schedule which yeah. is fair enough and had she turned up she would have ended up catching something horrible from the dripping uh, air conditioning unit in the ceiling anyway <laughs> Yeah, that, that's an ongoing theme in all of our videos. <laughs> yeah, it is. Uh, one of the funniest ones is the uh, NCISLA guys, Eric Christian Olsen. He's, he was hilarious during that interview. <laughs> so, yeah. Uh, yeah, it was really good. Uh, I mean, sadly, again, a lot of the interviews I had booked on the Friday uh, all got either rearranged or cancelled. Uh, due to kind of various people not being there, getting there late, increased security and a whole bunch of other stuff. Yeah. So uh, as kind of knock-on effects of all of the and the act of terrorism, their uh, security was ramped up really, really high. And uh, yeah, some people got caught in it and couldn't make it to interviews on time and things like that, which was a bit of a shame, but, you know, just one of those things. Yeah. So I went and recorded a panel instead, which is an author's panel, of, uh, which is about world building, which is an excellent panel, and I will, I will be putting that out on YouTube fairly soon as well. So, yeah, uh, who do we interview? So we did, we interviewed, yes, Sean Mayer, and, yeah, he was brilliant, talked about Firefly, talked about uh, much to do about nothing and kind of how how to tackle Shakespeare in a contemporary age. Yeah. Um, um, the NCISLA guys... Uh, Four of the original five Power Rangers I interviewed. Um, who else? There was a big Star Wars Rogue One panel, which was mainly um, kind of creature performers uh, and um, some of the, the the other minor characters in Rogue One. So that was a kind of oh, and the, the puppeteer for BB-8, which was kind of cool as well. So yeah, we interviewed all of those. And who else was there? Uh, a whole bunch of other people, but yeah, 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 I'm still going through all the footage and editing at the moment, so that will all be out on the, on the website soon. But yeah, it, it, it was good. I mean, it was uh, again, as always, it was absolutely rammed. Yeah. Uh, they were completely sold out on all weekend tickets, uh, completely sold out on all Saturday tickets. So it was basically then they were saying, you know, if you don't have tickets, then don't set out because there there were none spare on the door at all on the Saturday. Uh, so yeah, it was it was a fantastic event as always. Thoroughly enjoyed it. Cool. I think I've watched the uh, Sean Mayer panel on our website. Uh, I watched the NCIS one as well, but I don't watch the show, so I don't get it quite so much. But yeah, the Sean, Sean Mayer panel was really, really good. 
Um, and kudos for getting him the one on Firefly question. Thanks well. very much. <laughs> you almost see his eyes light up. Well, I know, and that was that, that was kind of why I wanted to do because it you know it felt very much like it was oh it's all going to be about Firefly or it's all going to, oh, when's Firefly coming back and stuff. So I thought I'd change it up a little. And, and yeah, it, it was know, a really good story that you came yeah. out with after that. Yeah, it really was. So yeah, no, it was, it was an excellent, uh, excellent little interview. I really enjoyed that. Cool. And then of course the following weekend, you were uh, trekked up to Brum for the Games Expo. Well, you trekked up first. So <coughs> you, you, you were there for the uh, the press preview on the Friday. I was there for the press preview on the Friday morning. Yeah. Um, I don't know what the collective noun is for journalists or bloggers or podcasters. I called it a gaggle. I think that probably is yeah, right, a gaggle. Something along those lines. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. But there was a gaggle of bloggers and podcasters and journalists all gathered around waiting eagerly for the doors to open. At a blagging. A blagging. A blagging. A blagging, yes. I like that as a collective name. <laughs> that works well. Um, yeah. Uh, <clears throat> I was in, in, in the weeks leading up to the expert, like, you get emails from everyone who's going to be there telling you about their game to go and see him. So I had a list of people I, I wanted to see. Uh, I think I saw most of them. Um, I checked out Big Potato Games because I bought so much stuff from them last year. I think last year I got Mr. Lister's uh, Incredible Listing Game. I got Obama Llama. I got QWERTY. Yeah, I spent a fortune at Big Potato last year. And again this year I bought um, The Comedian. That's coming out soon. Okay. And... They talked me through uh, their game First Dates, which is a grossly unsuitable for kids dating game. It's definitely 17 plus, um, where you you play in couples and each couple does a whole Mr. and Mrs. thing based on starter, main course and dessert stages of a meal and the questions at each stage get gradually more and more personal so at the start of stage the question might be who has the most useless knowledge and then in the couple you decide who it is and then the other couples decide whether you would agree or disagree when your answers are revealed and that goes all the way through to like dessert where the questions are things like um who is more likely to be aroused right now or he was more like to thrive in Nazi Germany, so it's quite a risque game. Okay. It's funny. It's definitely for the the cards against humanity, mm. um, alcohol infused party crowd. Uh, <coughs> but it sounds like a lot of fun. But I love big potato games. Like I said, I buy nearly everything they put out, mm. so that's great. Uh, I saw Tinkerbot Games and Ghostel. That was a pretty interesting game. Semi cooperative, semi competitive. There are some things we have to work together on, but otherwise you don't. Uh, you play ghosts in a, an old abandoned mansion that's been turned into a hotel, mm. and each day you have to work together to scare uh, the people out of the hotel. You get points based on who you scared. Um, but the one I was most looking forward to, and the one that I was pimping out the entire weekend long, was Temple Worker Assassins. Yes, yes. Like I literally had people overhear me recommend that game to, to friends and go, are you on commission? <laughs> Whenever I hear someone talking to you about what games to check out, you always say Temple Worker Assassins. What's the deal there? Like, no commission. It's just like, I got the email from them and it was very politely explained that their game was about temps murdering full-time employees. I was just like, I will see you 
first thing, <laughs> Friday morning. This sounds amazing, and it was. It's uh, it's a it's a deck building game with uh, worker placement placement elements, essentially. So um, it adds massive replay value. Like five rooms of the the office that you're working in are set. The other uh, four or five can vary from game to game. And they'll give you bonuses for combat against the full-time employees based on where you position your meeples. Uh, you've got a couple of copies to give around the show, so look out for the Twitter. Well, follow us on Twitter to follow, for more details on that. But, yeah, I kept going back to that Free game. me alert! Free me alert! Yeah, I kept going back to it. Like, every time I walked past, I'd stop and talk to them. Like, Adam was the artist, and he's an incredibly fun guy. Like, his art is incredible. That's one of the things that drew me to the game in the first place. And Dave, the designer, has designed a really, really slick game. Yeah, yeah. Megan ended up kind of playing it as well, and she thoroughly enjoyed it. Just everything is on message. Everything is on theme in that game. Like, the the rule book is the employee handbook. It's just little things, little details like that. That's maybe, maybe just absolutely fall for it. So, yeah, bought a copy, like, more or less on the first playthrough. Like, yep. Yeah. I'll have a copy of that, please. Awesome. Well, what else did I play? Um, I played Subterra from ITB Games. Uh, if you're familiar with the podcast, you'll have heard of ITB Games before. We playtested Molecular for them mm-hmm. way back in the day. Um, so Subterra is a tile-based game. You basically play a group of uh, cavers, spelunkers, essentially, who have got trapped underground you have to get out okay um but there's horrors in the cave system that you're in so it feels like descent the board game (laughs) (laughs) awesome the the movie descent yeah yeah, yeah. the descent yeah yeah um yeah so we're playing with that and like it has a limited turnaround as well so like there's a card in 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 the deck that you draw from that gives you events and stuff that literally says you're out of time. Okay. And when that comes, like at the start of every round, you have to make a roll. If you fail the roll, you die. Okay. Um, Fairly brutal. That's a pretty brutal game. It, then it went on to win awards. It was nominated for uh, best adventure game, I think. Um, but it won it. Um, what else did I play? Played loads. Um, we played that pirate game. Um, we did. Captains of the Golden Age. Captains of the Golden Age, yes. Uh, a, a pirate game about rum and pepper and no dice. Yeah, no dice at all, which is cool. I like that. Uh, takes the chance out of the game, makes it more skill-based rather than luck-based. Um, that, was, that was interesting. What did you think of that? Because that was... I, I, I quite enjoyed it. I mean, we only played kind of to the first round, really. Yeah. Because um, it's all about you, you, you build up your ship, and you you have you, your ship essentially has stats, which are sails, crew, weapons, and cargo, and, and, cargo. and then you can go around and you pick up different commodities from different islands across the board. And depending on what your stats are, means how much you can move in a turn, how much uh, stuff you can put into storage in a turn, how much you can store in there overall, and then it's all about once you've got your ship kind of beefed up a little, then it's about going and trading goods for pepper and then taking pepper and trading that for shares yeah. in, in a company. 
um, and then it's the person who gets the most shares that wins. Um, uh, yeah, I, I, I kind of enjoyed it. I can see there's a, a certain amount of kind of bluffing and skill involved and decision making as to whether you want to attack your opponent yeah. or make a run for it or whatever. And uh, occasionally someone can pull off a really, really sneaky move that uh, means that they win the game when it looked like they had no chance whatsoever. Yes. Like yeah. I did. <laughs> <laughs> you surprised all of us. Like, even the guy who ran the game was like. I didn't see that. <laughs> <laughs> yep, because you were totally winning for the entire thing, and then just out of nowhere, quick move, and I, and I won. <laughs> yeah, fucking stole the win. <laughs> so but yeah, it was fun. I mean, God bless the guys. They're like they were in full pirate gear. They were in full pirate they were, gear. They were really yeah, committed to yeah. it. So yeah, thoroughly enjoyed that. That was that was good fun. I'm looking at my list of other games I've made. Oh, perfect crime. Yeah. Play Perfect Crime. Ah, yeah, you told me about this one. This is yeah. the, the bank heist one. Yeah, so it's a one versus many game. So one of you plays the bank, the rest of you play a team of bank robbers, and you can select your team. Like I think we played uh, gentlemen robbers. So, but you can have like hackers, you can have ex-military stuff like that to to form your team of robbers, and then you have time to plan your heist. So you have money to spend on buying plans, buying weapons. Uh, buying equipment to bypass security and stuff. And the banker is also working in the same turn rate to add code locks or tripwires or uh, motion sensors, laser wires and stuff to the bank vault. And you don't know where anything is. It's all face down. It's all placed uh, by the banker. Uh, you can either go in absolutely cold, no planning whatsoever, catch the bank off guard, or you can just plan and plan and plan at which point the bank is also game all prepared. Um, it doesn't teach you how to actually run a bank, unfortunately, or to get away with it, but it's it's an interesting game. Okay. I had one character who literally, all he did he came in, when he was in the bank, he gave every other character plus one to the persuade roles. Uh, and I, I sat there just hacking every camera I could every round just to make people unseen. But whatever you do something, you leave evidence, and then like evidence can be used by the bank later to strengthen the police to come try and catch him. Mm. So, yeah. It was pretty cool. We didn't get to play a full game because you only have hour slots yeah. for most of these games at the expo, and we definitely procrastinated quite a lot at the start <laughs> of the game. Um, but that was fun. I mean, I think it's a, it was a kickstarted game. It's late. Um, it's late at night. It's been delayed until late this year but the game itself is working perfectly it's just like cosmetic things they're changing now like they're lightening the artwork it's a little dark on the print at the moment mm -hmm. but mechanic wise it's it's perfect yeah I was interested by the amount of kind of kickstarted games that were there it seems that's very much the thing in fact there was also a company there who were setting up to do a new kind of kickstarter so it's not Kickstarter, they're starting their own crowdfunding yeah. website for specifically doing games. That's weird. Well, a few, uh, yeah, I don't know. I didn't spot those guys. Yeah, they were at the, at the back end by um, Chaosium. Okay. I don't know what you're thinking. Back towards Ninja Games. Oh, yeah, the Ninja guys are there, weren't they? Yeah. Yeah. Um, no, I didn't spot them. And then there was also another one which was a company who will produce a game for you. 
So yeah, that 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 was another weird one. So you go to them, and then they'll do all the artwork and the printing and things like that. So you take the concept to them, and then pay them to build it. So there were some very weird stalls like that around. Yeah. So it, it, that yeah, so there were a couple of little odd ones like that that caught my eye. Yeah, there's nice to see some successful Kickstarters though. Because I think I've mentioned um, Subterra by ITV and Ghost Town from Tinkerbell mm. Games. They are both Kickstarter games. Um, Subterra won. Uh, Chameleon won Best Party Game. That was another Big Potato game mm-hmm. that I have in pre-order because it's Big Potato. So of course, <laughs> so of course I do. Fanboy. <laughs> uh, I just love their games. Their games are really good, um, and I love their standing this year as well. Like they had that. Um, the Big Potatoes game menagerie. It was it was awesome. Like a lot of effort went into a lot of stands this year, which I didn't see last year quite so much. Last year the Wotan bus was there with this they were on everything. Uh, but this year more people upped their stand game. Mm. And uh, it was really cool. I think it was helped by a much better floor layout this year than last year. Uh, the main stage was off in the corner rather than in the middle of the hall. Mm. So there was less noise pollution from the, from the stage over what you were doing. Um, I remember that like, in the centre of the hall you weren't getting lost in a crowd of people who were actually watching something. So getting around was easier. Uh, the hotel felt dead on the Friday, which is kind of weird. And it still felt pretty quiet on the Saturday. It's usually round in the hotel. Because mm. you haven't been before, have you? No, no, it was, yeah, it was my first time there. And... I think, well, for, judging from what you said, it's because the uh, the kind of tournament gaming was moved into one of the other halls. Yeah, Hall 3A had all the gaming this year. Like, first time I went a few years ago, they had to put a marquee for the X-Wing tournaments, and then like they had one of the halls in the in the Hilton for the other games, like the uh, Catan Championship that I was playing. And then last year, it was just like moved to a slightly bigger hall because uh, the library was over in uh, Hall 1. But this year, they dropped, dropped them all into Hall 3A at the NEC, and it was the most professional I've ever seen it. Like, there was, and it was massive. There were just yeah. CCG nerds everywhere. Yeah. Like, they had a massive Pokemon stage for, yeah. uh, for Pokemon CCG, um, with people doing actual on-camera on presentation stuff. Like Everything about the Games Expo this year just felt stepped up yeah an extra level um and i think it was reflected in the results like sixteen and a half thousand unique visitors it's now the third largest board game convention in the world like like gen con still first and s in the second Mm. but uk games expo has pushed origins down to fourth and taken a spot in third um but yeah it felt it felt busy but it didn't feel White as claustrophobic because it has on previous Saturdays. Um, and Sunday again was just pretty dead. Yeah. But yeah. Space to move and breathe, that's kind of what you want in a convention. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, no, I mean, I enjoyed it even though we were on there on a Saturday. It was quite busy, but you know, it was nothing we couldn't handle. Uh, and you know, we went to see the MMORPG show. Yeah. Again. <laughs> Can't miss a chance to see that. No, we can't because that was fucking awesome. Once again, hilarious. Yeah. So, uh, yes. You're a vicar. <laughs> That's fucking awesome. <laughs> Never had a vicar as Cast Familiar before. <laughs> If you've seen the MMORPG show, you know exactly what part of the show that's from. 
Yeah, so that that was pretty fucking funny this time. Yeah. Well, it always it is. Always this, yeah. this one was, yeah. I, I, I got to appreciate it rather than being on stage this time, which was good. Yeah. Um, uh, I didn't get to do any gaming, like any RPGs this time around, which was kind of a bit of a bummer. Because hmm. um, my usual crew were all off doing other things or not going to the convention this year, which kind of sucked. Uh, that's been a highlight the last two years has been going to do an RPG at like 8 o'clock mm. and not leaving sites on midnight. Um, but at least this year I got sleep and early nights, I suppose. <laughs> uh, uh, I was to schedule in some time to try out that e Reliers game that I bought. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. They saw you coming with that, didn't they? Hell yeah, they did. <laughs> yeah, it was literally five minutes walking into the convention and they managed to sell me an RPG, so fair play to you guys. <laughs> oh, I got a flog RPG as well. Um, I was told, I was asked... Have you ever wanted to play a seventeen-year-old in nineteen seventies America getting stoned, stealing cars? I was just like, "Is this days and confuse the role-play game?" And the guy looked at me and said, "I'm stealing that. I'm going to use that from now on." I was like, "Yes, I'll take it. How much is it? It's like eight pounds." So I bought it and I got home and I read it and it's all those things with the one caveat he didn't mention: you play seventeen-year-old girls. <laughs> okay. You bring 17-year-old girls in 1970s America stealing cars and doing drugs and getting high and stuff. And I'm just like, fuck it. I've played worse. <laughs> Fair play. <laughs> so I've got that. It's a little book called Velvet Glove. Um, probably was a clue in the title. Yeah. But yeah, so I bought that. I'll give that a shot at some point. Yeah, so I think I'll have to crack out that era layers because it sounds like it's a lot of fun. It's uh, about kind of bragging and storytelling in a tavern, so it's kind of my my kind of my kind of game. Lots of blagging and improvisational storytelling. I played a role play game recently. Um, this this reminded me of it, where you play orcs, and each orc has a patron god, and the gods fucking hate you. They just hate you. So they're also trying to curse your roles and stuff, and the other players make it harder and stuff. Um, I don't know what the system's called. I will have to find out what the system is called and let you know, because that's all about narrative rather than mechanics. So it was really fun. We actually recorded our uh, gameplay session of that, because the roleplay people are trying to try out the whole recording our roleplay games mm-hmm. idea. Um, so we tested it with that. Kind of worked. Cool. We'll see how it goes. Um, and then lastly, I guess I've gone through really all the games apart from Sharazad and the Lost Expedition from Osprey Games. Yeah, yes. Which I kept bothering Emma <laughs> to teach me how to play, um, but I ended up having to teach her how to score points and play Sharazad. Because you're fun. a massive nerd. Which, to be fair, it wasn't her game. <laughs> she, she developed uh, the Lost Expedition and she and we played that and we lost both games um, and then we played Sharazad on the Friday um, which is really sweet I like Osprey Games as well I'm probably as, as much a fan of them as I am Big Potato I think but for different reasons uh, Odin's Raven last year I raved about it and that's just so quick easy to play and Sharazad had me thinking all the way home because we played the first game and we sucked Basically, you have to tell a story and you score points based on the number of same coloured tiles you have, because that's the whole cohesion element of the, st- of the story you're trying to tell. Um, 
And in the first game, I think we got like four points, which by their role system, by their scoring system, is shit. And then like five to twenty-four points is the next level. And for the next two games, we got twenty-four points. And all the drive home, I was thinking, how can you get twenty-five? Because it seems fairly obvious that the that the base mechanic is you're not allowed to have more than three tiles in a column. You have to go ideally in numerical order from one through twenty-one. Because if you go, if if any number is lower than the number to its left, then that time it's taken out of the story. So ideally you want to keep one to twenty-one. And so seven columns of three seems the perfect amount. Um but we kept doing that and we still didn't get past the second rank of scoring, which was just a mediocre story. So the there had to be other ways. It kept me thinking, and I never got a chance to play it again, because whenever I went to the table she was demoing it for somebody else. I was like, no, <laughs> do it for me. I want to play it some more. Um, but the artwork on it is incredible, and the whole feel of the game is really, really nice. And it has a solo mode as well, so you can play it on your own. Cool. Yeah. Uh, the only other one I, I will mention is Unlock, which is one that I, I'd played before the expo, and they had a stand there where they were demoing it. Uh, and it's essentially it's a, an escape room in a box game. Mm-hmm. Uh, this, seem, this seems to be a kind of a burgeoning genre because we saw other ones that yeah, uh, one-shot only games because you have to fold the things and use them so you yeah. only could only actually play the game once. Oh, and they were twelve pound a pop as well. Yeah, I know, which was a bit expensive. much. But whereas uh, Unlock, I got for twenty-five quid, and it's three games in it, and you can play them as many times as you want. Although, yeah. You won't get as much out of it the next time, but essentially it's an escape room with cards that you can then use together, and you have uh, an app for a mobile phone or a tablet or whatever, and you use that to enter codes in that you discover during the game, and that allows you to escape. And you you've only got a certain amount of time to get out before it finishes, and you've lost. Okay. Yeah. I need to play that with you at some point. Yeah, it's pretty cool, and um, we'll, we'll get set up and we'll do a do a game of that one day. So we'll we'll have a board games day yeah. around here or at some point, and uh, yeah, have a bit of bit of bit of fun. Cool. Uh, I think I think I think that's everything I saw. I'm sure that's all I played. Um, there's quite a lot of games. Mm. Uh, oh, yeah. I mean, there was loads of other ones that we looked at quickly and had a little bit of a watch of play tests of yeah. things and. Went and bothered the ninja games ones. Yeah, Tanga wanted some more miniatures. She wanted some more soda pop miniatures. Yeah. Uh, and then I spent a little time at the Chaosium looking up my name in the credits at the back of the book. <laughs> in the latest print of the Call, the Call of Cthulhu rule book. Because I'm in there. <laughs> yeah. Nice. I like that game. Oh, I love it. Cthulhu is one of my favourite games yeah. of all time, which is, yeah, it was a no-brainer for me when they did a Kickstarter for it. I was like, yeah, take my money. I love Cthulhu. Uh, that's all the games. Uh, yeah. Cool. So, so yeah, lots of fun had, and I guess, yeah, we'll be ramping up for next year's. Well, yeah, they've already announced it's going to be bigger than next year. I think they've got Hall 2 rather than Hall 3A at the NEC. And they're saying that surrounding hotels, rather than just the Hilton Metropole, will have stuff going on as well. Awesome. Um, but yeah, it was an awesome weekend. Uh, the best one I've been to. Far and away. Cool. I think that maybe because I didn't spend the entire Saturday locked away in a Catan tournament this time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah, the last two years I've been the Catan National Championship, so this year I was just like, no, I'm going to go and see things this year. Fair enough. Yeah. Awesome. Right. So, reviews. Wonder Woman. Wonder Woman, yeah. I've still not seen it yet, so sell it to me. Okay, so, it's good. It's close to being very good. It's not great. It's definitely still a flawed film. Um... <coughs> <coughs> Uh, it's an origin story, as one would expect. And um, actually, you know what? I've got my review that I actually write of this, so I'm just going to find that and read that. <laughs> okay. Because that's because I either talk off the cuff, in which case we get a random mess of nonsense from me, or. I can read something coherent that I once wrote. <laughs> a thing what I wrote. A thing what I wrote. Uh, One Woman is a good film. Close to being very good, but it's not great. Uh, the benefit of swimming in the same pool as the rest of the DCEU films has flattered it by association. Uh, that said, it is far and away the best thing Warner's DC have released in a very long time. It is refreshing to see that DC film can have a colour palette beyond the grim, dark, neon setting. Oh, that's true. Like... The bit of the start in Themyscira is just all the blues and the sands and the beaches. Oh, it's glorious. You think, oh, what's going on? This is lovely. The sunlight is amazing. Um, and, uh, yeah, it's wonderful to hear characters in DC film have meaningful, well-written conversations that feel like they've been written by someone who's actually had a conversation. <laughs> okay. <laughs> you know? Um, there's, there's bits on, like, once they've, once they've, uh, Trevor has got to uh, the island and he's been rescued by Wonder Woman and they're leaving to go and fight the war, there's bits of them talking on the boat, which is just delightful. And in fact, that whole interaction between the two of them is really, really good. The, the, the main question I have is, are any of their mums called Martha? No. Right, okay, that's no. all right then. Hippolyta, obviously. <laughs> I know, I know you're joking. <laughs> um, <clears throat> yeah, Chris Pine does a good job in the sidekick love interest role, and it's actually nice to see him taking a back seat to the lead. Um, and I said here for emphasis because make no mistake, because that's a fun thing to write. Uh, this is Galdano's film. Like I'm the first to admit that when she was cast, I couldn't see her as Wonder Woman, but now. I can't see anybody else but her. Okay. She's really good. There's just something about her. I mean, it's it's all in her expressions. It's in her eyes as well, I think. Like, when she's Diana, she is... Especially when she's Diana off the island and back in the world, she's, she's naive, she's she's innocent, she's compassionate. Uh, but then she, she turns on a dime when she's Wonder Woman, and she is fierce and just savage. Um... And she carries it all off flawlessly. Like I, I cannot fault her performance um, at all. Like I literally couldn't see anybody else doing that role now. She's an absolute revelation, and she owns the entire film. Okay, I guess my my worry was that it was going to kind of fall into the Captain America trap. Um, it skirts that line, I guess. Like she, she is. The Captain America of the DC universe, you know, she's she's wholesome and good, and all about you know doing the right thing. And that whole fish out of water thing. Yeah, and I think that's played for laughs in some of, some parts of the film, but 
in, in other parts has played for um, really quite important sort of moments. Okay. She doesn't get the idea of PTSD, but there's a guy in the squad and Steve gets together a few people to go with her to get her to the front line, essentially. And one of them is Charlie, who is um, Spud from Transporting. And there's just a scene where they're all camped around and suddenly he starts screaming and shouting and he wakes up and he's, he's obviously had a PTSD flashback. Yeah. But nothing's made of it. Like, it's completely normalised. Like, he goes off and Steve's just like, don't worry, it's, it's just him. Like, they're accepting of him. Like, I think a friend of mine posted, like, it's the most real sort of... Uh, Acknowledgement of mental illness. I was going to say, it sounds of kind of like Captain America with hints of Iron Man 3. Iron Man 3, yeah. Now, my counterpoint was Iron Man 3 is probably the first uh, fairly truthful approach to PTSD in the film. But yeah, just whether it's normalised and it's sort of accepted even for having this issue. Um, but yeah, that, that does fish out of water moment there. But then there's the parts where she looks at a, a corset in the shopping mall, it's like, is this what you would call armour? It's like, no, silly Diana. <laughs> you have no idea. You're a fish out of water. Ha 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 ha. And then, yeah, sometimes it's really, really poignant as, as a counterpoint to the silliness. Um, if it's let down anywhere, it's let down by the villain. Like, the two main antagonists during the film just don't really seem to be doing very much. There's this big plot to release, well, essentially mustard gas and change the course of the war. And then there's Ares, who, the god of war, who Diana believes is responsible for causing the Great War. And she believes if she can kill him, that everything will go back to normal again. Um, and the problem that they have with not being good is that there's no character work on those. Like, it's the first DC film in a while where there's been a lot of character work put into the lead and the characters surrounding them. That little ensemble has got so much character in it, mm-hmm. um, but they've forgotten that they need to do it for the villains too. You need to have character on both sides of that of that moral compass to, in order to be engaged and connected, which is why I've marked it down. Like, it's top end of good, so it's a 7 out of 10. Okay. It's definitely worth watching. Um, yeah, yeah, cool. I, mean, I'll, I will endeavour to go and see it while it's still on the cinema. Uh, standout scenes for me would be when they get to the front line in the trenches the moment where she really becomes Wonder Woman for the first time getting out of the trench at the no man's land scene um, that will give you chills okay it's really really good awesome yeah surprised the shit out of me yeah yeah like I'd hoped it would be good I was worried it would be another DC film you know be pretty bad and been pretty rough on them, and, and I think fairly so. Yeah, oh yeah, you know, I, think, I, I don't think it's been unjustified. <laughs> no, I think I think we've been fair in our assessment of the, of the, the films to date, um, and there were all sorts of rumours coming from the set of problems filming Wonder Woman, um, which had me a bit nervous. But yeah, I've seen it and I've loved it. It's a little long, like it's two hours twenty, which is a little bit long. Um, because it does drag in the last mm. little bit. If they'd had more at the start at, on the island, I'd have been okay with that because the Amazon stuff is really, really fucking good. 
Um, Robin Wright, who is Princess Buttercup. All oh, right, yeah, yeah, is yeah. Uh, Anna's mother. So okay, you know. um, that's pretty cool. But yeah, the, the first part, the, the whole backstory part, really, really cool. Loved it. The ending dragged. The action a little bit was good. Fighting scenes were solid, and she is Wonder Woman. Gal Gadot is Wonder Woman. Awesome. Go and see it. Definitely go and see it. Cool. Yeah. Is there anything I've seen recently that's worth a shout out? Uh, found an odd little film on uh, on Sky the other day. It's called Continuum. It's Rufus Sewell, Gillian Anderson, uh, Haley Joel Osment, and Victor Garber. Who uh, uh, Victor Garber was one I interviewed at, at the <laughs> There we go. That's another one that I interviewed. Um, and that's quite an interesting little time travel movie. So I, I, I enjoyed that one the other day. It's, uh, it's it's nothing to shout home about. It's just that uh, Rufus Sewell uh, goes missing and it turns out that he's gone back in time and it's all about his son trying to change it all, played by Amy Joel Osmond. Yeah. Uh, Netflix or...? Um, that was on Sky Cinema. Oh, okay. Caught that the other day just while I was... Uh, yeah, just sat with nothing to watch. Just thought... See if I could find anything sci-fi-ish on, on Sky to watch. And yeah, gave it a go and it was all right. Cool. I'd, I'd give it a kind of a solid six to seven as a, as a time travel movie. Sweet. Very hard to do. Yeah. Very hard to do well. Oh, and I started um, halfway through 13 Reasons Why at the moment as well. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm just on episode seven now. Uh, it's... Uh, it, it's Okay, I, I find the the main character really irritating. Or Clay. Yeah, yeah. yeah I just I, I find him very very irritating in how he reacts to things. Yeah, I stand by I stand by my original assessment of that series. Like, doesn't really do enough to actually tackle the issue of suicide or teen suicide. Uh, making the drama out of it doesn't really address the issue properly. Mm. I, I, I like the way a lot of it is shot. It's very clever yeah. in, in, in its kind of cinematography and the way it's put together. But just, yeah, the, the, the main character, I just, uh, I don't like him. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah that's fine. Okay, that brings us to... Um, to the talking point. Yeah, how we'd save the Alien franchise, because if you listen to our last review, last episode, you'd know that didn't like Alien Covenant. Mm-hmm. Not one bit. Uh, I hated it less than Prometheus, but you'd be hard-pressed to find anything I'd hate more than Prometheus, to be honest with you. Um, and if you've listened to the show for a while, you'll know that we did our five films we had to see. Mm-hmm. And Alien was first and foremost in my list. Yeah. Because I love it. So, but thinking long and hard about this. First point to make is I'm going to make several assumptions during this uh, pitch, um, which I will explain. Um, Secondly, I feel the thing that's been missing from the last couple of movies in the canon of Prometheus and Covenant has been character. Um, (coughs) I've listened to Ready, Steady, Cut podcast, and listened to Jono talking about his review of Covenant, and he said the cardinal sin was trying to explain where the alien came from, and I agree, that's... Part, 
part the problem of Prometheus and Covenant in explaining its origin. The other cardinal sin is the lack of character. Hmm. Like, say what you were about Alien 3 or Alien Resurrection, and from my point of view, I actually enjoy Alien 3 quite a lot, but they've got memorable characters. In Alien 3, you've got Golik, you've got the Dark, you've got the Preacher, Charles Stone, you've got uh, the Governor, everyone there. And then in Resurrection, you've got Ron Perlman being a badass. You've got Winona Ryder as cool. Like, you can picture them and remember them. Michael and... Wincott in yeah. Resurrection as well, yeah. one of my favourites. As the leader of the uh, the crew of the betting, yeah, yeah. yeah. Like, you remember them and you're invested with them. You can kind of recall how they die and you're rooting for them to survive. Whereas in Covenant and Prometheus, just really don't give a Similarly shit. to Alien versus Predator, you don't care. You don't care. A character is really important. Like, if you're writing a horror or a thriller or these, these sort of films, the audience has to connect to the character on screen because it's not enough... They have to, to care when someone yeah. gets eviscerated. It's not enough just to show us blood and gore and call it a horror film. There has to be a connection because you have to play on our hopes for that character. So I'm taking it back to its roots with the next Alien film with my pitch and it's all about the character. And I would get... Joss Whedon back in to write it. Mm-hmm. Like he wrote Resurrection yeah. and I would get him back in because I think he's still one of the best character writers out there. Um, so, basic plot. It's 2284, so it's 100 years after Alien 3 mm-hmm. and 150 years before Resurrection because there's a massive period of time in there yeah. where you can, you can work. Uh, and the very simple plot is that the crew of a deep space salvage scavenger ship come across the floating wreck of a ship once long thought lost. So it's really, really simple in its setup. Right. As for the film itself, I would open with the titles. Like Alien, Aliens, Alien 3, Resurrection, they've all had that. You've done the title first, then into it. Alien Covenant didn't. Any cover went to the shitty little thing with David the Android and uh, Guy Pierce's Wayland before they went to the title sequence, which just made me cross. <laughs> um, because you shouldn't. You have to have the slow reveal of the alien title. And I have a prologue that says uh, something like 100 years earlier, like it'd be 2128 AD, which is five years after Alien. Um, and we see people loading glass boxes off the surface of a desolate planet, which looks vaguely familiar, uh, on big cargo trays. There's gas in these crates. You can't quite see what's in there. But as the last one's loaded in, you see an egg. You see the egg. Um, the door is sealed. The person who's done the sealing of the door steps back, and it's revealed to be Ash, the android. From Alien, it's just Ian Holm with the face mm-hmm. there. Uh, it's all loaded up. There's a Captain Cargo Secure type of thing, and then we take off. Still in the prologue, there's the captain in the roll call. One member of the crew isn't responding, and it's a flash to him just out cold and one of the boxes open. And then we come back to present day. And it's the crew. And I was thinking about this in the drive up. Who would I have the crew based on? I would base the crew on the crew of the Firefly. Yeah, of course you would. <laughs> I was, I think this, this this whole film would be Firefly meets Alien. 
I guess. But I would base the characters, the archetypes would be the crew of the Firefly. Captain Tight Pants. Well, maybe not quite as lighthearted and throwaway because it's still an alien film, so I'm still going to be sh- pitching for a 15 or an 18 rating. Mm-hmm. But, like, a family in a non conventional, a family in a Joss Whedon sense of the word, a family, yeah. you know. But that would be it because I, and I would spend the entire first act just with these guys. Like, they come across the ship at some point during the first act, but most of it is them with their petty squabbles you know, playing games, just the crew bonding. So you, you have long enough in the film, uh, you have this nice little ease into it. Actually, you know, life. I, I know I slammed life. <laughs> yeah, you did. <laughs> I slammed life for the way that it ended, but actually the beginning part where you've got the crew getting together was very alien-esque. And I actually, that was actually kind of the best part of that movie, but you've got uh, Gillian Hall and Reynolds, Ryan Reynolds being awesome, so that's fine. But yeah, more of that, more of as, more of giving the audience a chance to connect to the characters that they're going to witness be killed. Yeah, you know, over the next 40, 40 minutes to an hour, depending how long it is. So yeah, they they're all the way through in the first act, come across this ship, which I've called the SS Celeste, because it's been this mysteriously lost ship. Uh, they get on board, everything seems okay, but everything's very quiet, they're not sure what's going on, and then they uncover this recording from 100 years ago of loading the ship, loading the Cairo onto the ship. Um, one of the crew members, I not which one, disappears, they eventually find her, or him, um, either cocooned or with a face hugger, and they have to get off the ship as quickly as possible because things start going to shit. And as they try to get back to their, their own craft, um, they realize they're locked out of the airlock. They can't get out. Something or someone on the ship has overridden all the computer commands. They can no longer get off. Uh, and that's when the second secondary villain is revealed, and that Ash. It's not. It's not just the one Ash android. There's more than one of them, and they're still acting on their existing orders, which is to preserve these samples mm. for the Wayland Utani. Not Wayland, but the Wayland Utani, because it's Wayland Utani Alien, um, that organisation. Because you have to assume in Alien, when Ash is uh, off on his own using Mother and getting the details of the mission, you've got to assume that he's messaged back to Earth and said, We found what you're looking for. This is so the Celeste was a second ship sent to try and get it better prepared because of Ash's knowledge, but still not completely prepared. As I, and then the third act is then a race between the survivors of the crew of uh, the scout, the salvage ship, uh, to find a way off the ship back to theirs, fighting off alien or aliens, depending mm-hmm. on where they are, and uh, evil androids. Sounds good. That's how I do it. It's nice and simple. Yeah, yeah, I like it. It's, it, it borrows the Haunted House of <coughs> Space element of, of Alien, uh, ups the stakes a little bit by having a secondary threat in there, um, calls back nicely to Alien, and it also plants the seeds of, you know, the fact that there's all this time between Alien 3 and Alien Resurrection. And, and it keeps those two films canon as well, which mm-hmm. I think is also key for me because I like those films. 
Yeah. Yeah. But the assumption has, there's an underlying assumption all the way through the Alien films in that someone at a corporation knows about the Xenomorph. Because it's all about the idea of weaponizing them. Yes. It's a theme in Aliens. It's a theme in Alien 3. Um, It's the plot of Alien Resurrection. Yeah. (laughs) You know. Um, So, yeah. It keeps those canon. Throws back nicely. Uh, I think the image, I think I personally think the idea of seeing Ash as the android is going to make people just immediately edgy mm. and nervy. Um, that's how I do it. Cool. Yeah, works. <laughs> My other idea was much the same, but the ship that got across is the Salako. Okay, yeah, yeah. An idea of a, a group of salvages or scavengers coming across the Salako, which wasn't destroyed. Yeah. No. Like, Fire systems kicked in, ejected uh, Ripley and Co. to outside Alien 3, but the ship is still there. And for all we know, there's still a queen on it. Yeah, absolutely. You know? yeah. So, yeah. Okay, yeah. so my idea is, and there's two ways you could go about this. One is either uh, a montage of scenes from Alien 3, or the entirety of Alien 3, whichever way you want to look at it. And then at the point where uh, Ripley and the new queen fall into the furnace, then uh, Ripley wakes up in a bed and, and uh, sweating and dreaming, oh, what's going on? And she goes in and she finds Hicks in the shower. And then they go on and they film William Gibson's script for Alien 3 that he wrote. <laughs> <laughs> and they make that one next, <laughs> which is all focused around Hicks, Newt, and Ripley, and in which Ripley dies halfway through, and then we finally get rid of Sigourney Weaver, uh, and then we have uh, Newt as the main character yeah. in that film, backed up by Hicks. So we, we, we pull a Dallas in the Alien universe, yeah? <laughs> they wake up and it was all a dream. Oh, man, no. <laughs> Hard pass. Hard pass. Um, no? No. So cheesy. It's like... It's like on Doctor Who this week. Well, it was either that or... he faked his regeneration. I was like, oh, you dick. Well, it was either that or it was, you know, you have Ripley wake up and then find the alien queen in the shower. <laughs> that was my other idea. Uh... What? what? What do you want? <laughs> who'd you have to, who would you have directing it? I know that I'd go with Blomkamp straight away, but... Um, oh, I, I'm really not sure, to be honest. Um, I would pick a director who likes physical effects over CGI. Yeah. And who likes full sets rather than green screen. Because I think... Part of the reason Alien stands up so well even today is that everything was done on sets and the fact that they actually built three three essential layers of the Nostromo and to get from one part of the set to the other you had to actually walk through corridors of the spaceship made it feel claustrophobic and it comes across in the performances, it comes across in the lighting and the direction of the photography and everything. So I think that is key to bringing it back. It has to have that aesthetic again. It can't Go with these massive sprawling landscapes and no, no, open no, openings. No, no, no. It has it's to be claustrophobic. Yeah, it has to feel enclosed. Like even even the uh, the plan on Hadley's Hope and Aliens that felt claustrophobic. Mm. The sets on there were, were pretty intimidating. 
and they were again on Mania 3. Um, Resurrection, I feel, it was a, it was a USM, it was the United States military ship, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. It was the Origa. Well, yeah, it was a, like a, a space station thing. Wasn't yeah, it was the Origa, it was a ship. Um, so it was a bit cleaner, but yeah, I would go back to that sort of set design. An aesthetic. In terms of directors, yeah, go with you have to have Kevin Smith. So you have Sigourney and the Queen and a two-header in a cafe. Oh, talking heads. <laughs> <laughs> I think Danny Boyle was on board for Resurrection. Yeah, cool. It'd be an interesting choice of director for a film. Oh yeah, absolutely. I think it, I mean, it absolutely has to be <clears throat> anyone but Ridley Scott. Mm. And it can't be James Cameron or David Fincher, although I'd like to see him get a proper chance. Yeah, Something like Neil Marshall, maybe. Yeah, curious. Yeah. That was the whole fun of the Alien franchise, was it gave the new director a chance to put their, their spin on this on their story. Yeah. But yeah. I'll go for Neil Blomkamp. He likes his physical effects. He likes his full sets. He would work. So not uh, Dallas, Kevin Smith... I would, I would, I would prefer not. <laughs> I prefer to not go that direction, if I'm honest. Um, I think there's mileage in that. <laughs> <laughs> I feel that would be a bit, bit of a car ferry. <laughs> uh, yeah. There we go. Uh, do you agree with Spindles or <laughs> me? Essentially, do you want a, a Dallas? Ending to Alien, or uh, yeah, because I can't, I can't decide whether it should be that the <laughs> Alien Three is just a montage of dream sequence, or that you actually have to sit through and watch the entirety of Alien Three, and then you just tack on the new ending <laughs> and then do the whole new film afterwards. I can't, uh, I can't quite figure out which one will be better. I mean, if you're, if you're going to do the whole um, Dallas thing, then all all you need really is. Uh, Bishop reaching out to Ripley saying, it's okay, it's okay, and then her saying, nope, fuck it, and dying, and then she wakes up. Like, you don't need the entirety of Alien 3, because which one would you have? Would you have release or Finch's assembly cut? I'd say the assembly cut, though, because that was, that was a really, really good film, yeah. but, I, you know, uh, as you say, I quite enjoyed it. But I just, I really like the script that William Gibson wrote for Alien 3. And the only reason it didn't get made is because Ripley dies in it. Uh, well, you'd have to work getting Sigourney Weaver back in. Because she almost didn't do Resurrection. Mm. She ended that because of Joss Whedon's uh, uh, initial treatment of the screenplay. But she didn't want to keep waking up and have an alien around her. So if you literally have her wake up <laughs> as the plot of the film... <laughs> I think I think she'd say hard pass as well. <laughs> but I don't know, you can always, always try. I mean, go. It's amazing what you can do with CGI these days. <laughs> of course, there's like a ton of stuff out in the expanded universe for Alien, which could quite easily be made into a film. Mm. Like you've got uh, Nightmare Asylum, you've got Female War, you've got Earth Hive. There's tons of novels out there, different types of Alien, yeah. Civil Wars, like uh, Genocide. Um, but yeah, that's how I do it. I do it. I set it in the gap between Alien Three and Resurrection, and it would essentially be Five Minutes Alien. So you have a really likable crew of people that you wanted to survive, and then you watch them get horribly killed. 
Nice. Bleak. I yeah. like it. That's, that, that's, that's, oh, that's me. <laughs> <laughs> no, I can go with that. Cool. Um, right. Uh, I think that's all for this episode then. I think so. So on the next show, we will have our fall season wrap up. Yeah, wrapping up fall season finales and, and whatnot. The shows that surprised us, the shows that disappointed us. Mm-hmm. There are a couple. The shows that we stopped watching. Yeah. Fear yeah. the Walking Dead's back, folks. Brace. See, that's how much excitement you can hear. All that excitement <laughs> out there about Fear the Walking Dead mean? being back. A whole two-part series opener, which <laughs> I've not gone anywhere near. So yeah, that's, that's all for next time. <laughs> but until next time, I've been Brendan. I've been Spindles. Take care and be excellent to each other. That wasn't quite right. It'll do. <laughs> it will.